Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised, this story contains adult content and graphic language. And the thing that happens with most serial killers is that they begin oftentimes killing the person in a very simple way, shooting them or strangling them or cutting them. So then they devised ways to torture them in order to have more excitement out of it. Because let's face it, just killing somebody is real boring. Welcome to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. In this episode, we invite Dr. Vonda Pelto to the program. If you recall from episode one, I describe how my investigative journey first began on this case at Dr. Pelto's Southern California home. It was early December of 2015, and I was commissioned to report and write a profile piece on Dr. Pelto, who enjoyed a colorful career as a psychologist with an office in the Los Angeles Men's County Jail. It was there she treated her patients, who just happened to be some of the most prolific serial killers that terrorized Los Angeles residents back in the 80s. After our interview, Dr. Pelto included me in a small gathering of her neighbors for a Christmas celebration at the house. On that evening, I met local theater owners Jeff and Nancy Hathcock, where Daniel Wozniak performed as the lead for their musicals. It was also the same location where Daniel killed and dismembered his first victim, Sam Hare, in the attic of their Liberty Theater. From that moment, I never returned home, and thus began my odyssey in uncovering the details of this case. I want to welcome you, Vonda, to Sleuth today. You certainly are someone that's been long time now in my past, and we started together when uh, when I did that profile piece on you, and it all began from there. Right. Long time ago now. I know. It's like when you have to start counting on the 2015. We're going to yeah. be December 2018 very soon, right? Yes. So it's been a three-year <laughs> odyssey. <laughs> One of the reasons why I wanted you to come in and talk to us today was because of course, of your you know psychological background that you have, and certainly your your history of having very interesting clients. Why don't you share with our audience some of those clients and some of some of that background? I was very fortunate that I was brand new PhD and hired into the L.A. County Men's Jail back in the very early eighties, and at that time we had such a rash of serial killers. I don't know if it was contagious or if it was in the water. Some of my clients were the trash bag murderers and Douglas Clark, the sunset killer, and then the freeway killers. There were five of them, and I saw all but four. And then the hillside stranglers, Ken Bianchi and Angelo Buono, and John Holmes, the famous porn star. 
I want to talk about the Hillside Stranglers for a moment because you had mentioned in the profile piece I had done with you several years back that there was this symbiotic relationship that they had, that you felt as if that was part of sort of maybe why they decided to kill because together they became this combustible relationship that ignited this desire and need to kill. Oftentimes I felt the same about Daniel Wozniak and Rachel Buffett. I feel that after all the interviews and research I've done, that I don't believe Daniel Wozniak would have killed if he never met Rachel. And I'm not alone in that feeling. The, mm-hmm. the Costa Mesa police feel the same. And I'd like you to talk about what it is about that those types of relationships that that basically draw them to, to, to do such dark, evil crimes. It's kind of like Bonnie and Clyde, in a way. It's the same with, really, the two hillside stranglers. Bianchi was never killing until he met his cousin Angelo. And their first killing was as a result of being angry at a prostitute. And to get back at her for betraying him and stealing money from Angelo Buono, the cousin, uh, they decided to kill her and to set an example to any other prostitutes. But without the two of them, it would not have worked. And Angelo said that Ken Bianchi was, he was the very, very handsome, attractive man. And he could get the women to come along to Angelo's place. Angelo's place was an upholstery shop in Los Angeles. And so Ken would go out cruising and find an attractive woman, bring her back to Angelo's place, and then they would rape her for as long as they wanted to and then kill her. So you're saying that Alone, they they didn't have the desire, but together, like two pieces of the puzzle, they hooked, they they clicked, and then off they went. They needed each other to in order to perform these acts. Exactly, and the thing that happens with most serial killers is that they begin oftentimes killing the person in a very simple way, maybe shooting or like the freeways strangling them. But as with Ken and Angelo, they got bored with just shooting them or strangling them or cutting them. So then they devised ways to torture them in order to have more excitement out of it. Because let's face it, just killing somebody is real boring. So they did get a high out of it. Yeah, absolutely they did. It was lots of fun. That whole idea of getting a high from killing and doing it in such a way that gave them that jolt Mm -hmm. is something that I think also could be looked at with this case because Chris Williams, who was a new friend of theirs, who had loaned them the money because they were getting evicted the week of the murders. They were getting evicted Mm -hmm. that Tuesday. And Chris Williams had met them fairly recently and, and decided he liked them and they were nice. And so he wanted to help them and he gave them a bit of money to stave off the eviction. It was $2,000 actually. And he got that from a charity that was thrown for him because he didn't have any health insurance. And so he had some health issues. And he thought, you know, these people raised almost $10,000 for me. I'm going to pay it forward and help these people. And and his whole thing was, I just wanted to make sure I got it back. So I came up with this loan shark story, right? I need the money back by Friday. I'll give you four (laughs) days kind of thing. And so that's why the murders were committed on that Friday because of this loan shark deadline. But one of the reasons why I'm sharing with you this is because Chris Williams had been with them the night before, and they were having a little barbecue, barbecuing sausages on their deck after one of the nine performances that Daniel and Rachel were in. And he said that he will never forget this scene as long as he lives. Dan was out on the deck, and he started reciting word for word the role that Matt Damon had played in The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's a movie that was written by Patricia Highsmith, mm-hmm. who was a sort of Edgar Allan Poe type. You know, she was a Stephen, the Stephen King of Europe. And she wrote this movie about a young man who was conning people and, and stealing people's identities. And when they found out who he was, he ultimately would kill the person. So he loved being in this world of pretend. And this was Daniel's favorite role. So Dan was on this deck. He was reciting word for word this character's 
part. And he started singing. And when he stopped, Chris Williams looked at him and, and, and said, oh, my gosh, like, how do you know that so well? And he said, he's me. That's my favorite part of all time. At that moment, when he's singing this aria from, from this movie, Sam leans over his deck. He's two decks up, right? He lives two apartments up, two floors up from Dan. And he leans over and basically acknowledges Dan for this beautiful song he's singing. He say, hey, dude, you know, you're doing a great job, but knock it down a notch. You know, we're all trying to sleep. I got to help you in the morning, right? And he goes, Sam, you want to come down? And Sam's like, no, 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 but I'll see you in the morning. And the morning was when Sam was lured to the attic and ultimately killed. So that whole scene for Chris, he said for him, he sensed this need that Daniel had to feel what it was like to to kill based on this role that was something he embodied. And I'm wondering how you feel about that scene and what, what does that, how does that strike you? Oftentimes people have fantasies about killing. William Bonin, the freeway killer, was a truck driver. And all day long, he would fantasize about who he was going to pick up and where he was going to kill him and how he was going to do it. And so I would guess that Dan was having some of these same kind of fantasies. But until he hooked up with Rachel, he didn't go through with it. He was extremely dependent upon her. And he has many of the qualities of a borderline personality, where they're very dependent upon somebody else. And they are easily manipulated because they have this huge, tremendous fear of abandonment. And so once he got involved with Rachel, this beautiful woman, and from what I understand, Dan had had very little dating experience or sexual experience with a woman. So when Rachel was interested in him, he had to do everything he could do to keep her. And he certainly did. Yes, he did what she needed. And so that's where that diagnosis of potentially borderline personality, although we should tell our listeners he was never your patient and you never met him, but you certainly listened to some phone calls of his between himself and and Rachel, right? As well as uh, learning from some of the other interviews that I've had, exactly his history, exactly. But uh, the borderline personality—that's that's very interesting because again, it involves another person to take you to those new heights, right? To take you to that level of evil that you never thought existed in your personality before. Mm-hmm. In fact, he said to police when they said, "What did you feel like?" when you were cutting off Sam's head. And he said, I was smiling and laughing. Mm. And they said, smiling and laughing, why? And he said, because I just never imagined myself in this place. Like, I never imagined myself doing something like Mm. this. Maybe he didn't imagine himself cutting a head off, but I think he imagined killing someone. Something else about him, he had a lot of antisocial tendencies also, Um, being able to steal money from other people, um, being able to not pay their debts, um, changing his name or his persona to fit in with Rachel. Or fit in with anyone he's conning. He actually, it's very interesting because he told Chris Williams, when Chris Williams brought up this whole loan shark thing, he had said to Chris Williams prior to that conversation that he was a fellow paisan, you know, and he would do the Italian accent. He wasn't Italian at all, but he, he, like a chameleon, he became that in order to fulfill the con. And he was an actor and she was an actress. So this fit very nicely with the two of them. One of the other activities that I learned that the two of them shared together, Rachel and Dan, were that they would actually play a game and try to come up with scenarios on how they would kill someone and get away with it. Different, like they plot out these plans of how they would do it and how they would get away scot-free, which to me, that's a very odd hobby. And it had to be mutual. And had it not been mutual, they would not have planned to get married. 
something I thought in listening to the phone calls was I didn't see any kind of remorse at all. It was all simply about how was he going to get away with what he had done. But I didn't hear sorry that he killed these two people. And I didn't hear anything from Rachel either saying, oh my God, Dan, what did you do? I didn't hear any shock, which led me to believe she already knew. But something extremely strange was how she was so insistent in one of the first phone calls that she contact the detective and tell the detective that Tim had evidence. And I thought, for her being his fiance, uh, Dan's fiance, and then to insist upon calling the detective and saying, hey, guess what, dude? Um, Tim has some evidence. So I... I thought this woman doesn't love Dan. Well, there was many indications that she didn't love Dan. In in fact, her own words, she said, I I was never over the top about him, but I was Mm -hmm. okay with that. I mean, the night Dan was arrested from his bachelor party, she was brought in for questioning very early the next morning. And she said to detectives that, you know, he wasn't a very good lover. You know, he had a small penis, you know, and, 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 and this is two days before she's supposed to marry the guy. So, I mean, they they all thought that was so strange. And again, the same thing when she, they brought her in. They actually brought her into the room because detective one of the detectives said to me, we just didn't think she would believe what we were going to tell her. We wanted to see her reaction when he was sharing with her the details of, of what he was saying. And they said it was because of her complete lack of reaction or shock or like you say, any kind of sense of remorse or, oh my God, just the horror, right, of what he was talking about, they saw none of that. And so they felt that was this first indication that she was probably part of the plan and knew everything. Yeah, I totally agree. Otherwise, she would have said, well, on the phone, too. I It sounded to me, listening to the phone call, like she had almost been coached before the phone call to make leading questions to get him to tell her on the telephone, a confession on the telephone. And they certainly knew it was being recorded. And I thought, wow, how can this woman who supposedly love him keep saying, well, just tell me what you did, Dan. Just tell me. Just tell me what you did. And I thought if he was going to try to plead that he was innocent, she was setting him up. Interesting. One of the things that I wanted to share with you about that one phone call where you mentioned that she's saying, you know, I ran into Tim and Tim has this evidence and I have to tell the police because the call's being recorded before they think I'm trying to cover it up. There, There's a scenario that you're not aware of that, in fact, in that car sitting next to her in the passenger seat was a woman by the name of Violet Randolph. And Violet Randolph was driving around with her that day because Rachel went to the Wozniak home to tell Daryl and Marianne about Daniel's in jail and this is what's happening. And as they were leaving the house, Tim drove up with his girlfriend at the time, Lisa Golidge, and it was there. She got out, went over to the to the car where Tim was, and Tim, she told him that Dan was arrested and he then shared with her, you know, I have this evidence, I have the bag, I have the gun. And she's putting her hands up on her ears. No, 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 I don't want to hear any of this. And so when Rachel got back in the car, it was Violet that said, what are you going to do about this? I mean, what are you, I, I, is it true? Does he have evidence? And she's like, yes, he has the gun. And I, she said, you have to call police. You have to tell him before that gun disappears. And she's like, no, no. And and Violet's like, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it because, you know, I, I have to do it. So she's picking up her phone to dial her mother to get Detective Morales's number. And at that point, Dan calls in from the holding cell. And that's when she's like, babe, you know, I have to do it. You're you're dead already. Like he said, no, no, no. If you do that, I'm dead. And she says, you're dead already. I think at that moment, she's like, okay, you're on the hook. I got to get myself off here. You know, I got to make sure I walk away clean. And if you love me, you'll let that happen. I totally agree. I thought the whole time she was really covering her behind 
and really setting him up. And knowing how easily he was manipulated, I think she believed and knew he would never squeal on her. That's one of the questions a lot of people ask me about this case. Why, after all these years, she's moved on, she's engaged to someone else, why haven't you given her up? And part of that reason I found, in fact, Tim Wozniak himself told me that if Rachel speaks and if he goes down, she's going down too. Like they're both connected. They both spent a week together after Dan was arrested when he finally confessed to the murders. Rachel spent a week in a hotel room with Tim and Lisa Golich and they were lighting up. In fact, Tim said to me, she was absolutely an expert, brilliant at lighting a bowl of crystal meth. I don't even know if that's how you say it because I know nothing about that <laughs> stuff. But he said it's it's a kind of an intricate pipe and you pretty much, if you're you lighting to, it up and using it, you how. have to know what you're doing, right? <laughs> so he, of course, knew what he was doing and watching her, he said she was an expert and they sort of just went into this crystal meth fog all week. And uh, I guess that's probably where they basically made their pact. Yeah, sure sounds like that. Mm-hmm. I would like to speak more about the calls because I know that you've listened to, there were three calls that, of all the calls, they were the most significant calls because they were the the lengthiest and they were the most, I don't know, telling, if you will. And you did listen to those calls. And I'd love to know more of your perspective and analysis of those calls and, and what you gathered from them. I think one of the things that I was most surprised about, particularly the first call, was that Rachel wasn't saying, we're going to get you a good attorney. Have you talked to attorney? Don't say anything. Because we all watch TV, and we all know you're not supposed to confess to anything without an attorney. But I never heard those words out of her mouth, encouraging him to do that. And he seemed like such a dependent kind of weak, can I say, mama's boy, and Rachel was kind of mama to him. And so he was very dependent upon her to give him some guidance, and she didn't. She just pushed him and pushed him to confess. Editor's note. For access to all the jailhouse calls between Daniel Wozniak and Rachel Buffett that occurred on May 27, 2010, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash sleuth podcast. He, he mentioned to her in the calls that his life really unraveled when he disconnected from his family. And she asked him, why? Why did you break from your family? And I think she knew because he would share with her emails from his mother. His mother was very blunt about her feelings about Rachel, that she was uneducated. She came from a poor Mm -hmm. family. She wasn't good enough for him. And she had quite a long list, actually. And I think that Rachel knew what the disconnect was. But he went on to describe in these calls that he was starting to hear voices. He got to the point he didn't Mm -hmm. like confrontation. And he was getting to the point where he was ready to confront and contemplating killing his own parents. Who knows? I mean, I often wonder, because he did share a very similar story to Steve Hare, because Steve Hare was very frustrated. He wasn't getting enough information from the Costa Mesa police at the time. Understandably so, they were Mm -hmm. doing an investigation, but he wanted to know everything. His only form of peace was for him to get any details he could about what happened to his son. So he went to the horse's mouth. He went to Dan and Dan Mm -hmm. met with him. And one of the things he did say to him was that Sam was not his first target. And he told them, and it was very kind of eerie because every time Marianne Wozniak would come to visit Dan, she would come with a Bible. And mm-hmm. when Dan met with Steve Hare, he came with his Bible. And as he's telling, because Steve wants to know who, who was your first target? And he opens up his Bible and takes the little golf pencil that was there. And he writes in the very Bible that he prays with his mother, my parents, he writes. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. So he had had, he had had fantasies for a long time about killing someone that hated his parents. And that was during the time he was dating her. But again, Marion was rejecting her. He never could bring her to the house. He could never incorporate her in family holidays. He had to lie. The lies 
from what I understand, especially from his high school and college friends, began based on the fact that he had to lie to his mother in order to have a normal young man's life, in order to go date or go party or do whatever. The lies were centered around that social activity because she wanted him at home. She didn't want him going out with other women that weren't appropriate. Sounds like she was very possessive of him and very domineering. And that's probably why he hooked up with Rachel, because she was also very domineering and mothering and controlling. All of their friends say that she definitely wore the pants. She was the one that called the shots. She was the one in charge. He didn't do anything without her knowledge or her approval. So you had said earlier, I think, that the two of them had discussed killing someone, Rachel and Dan. And so it was very easy to see him slide in to killing these two people that he considered very, very good friends. And he didn't have any problem. But I I do recall, too, he needed the money so they could get married. Well, that's what instigated. The first thing was when he was arrested a couple weeks before the murders, he was arrested for an outstanding DUI warrant. And ironically, it was Costa Mesa that arrested him. He didn't have the money. They didn't have the bail to get out. So Rachel enlisted a mutual friend, a, a neighbor in the complex, a gentleman by the name of Dave Barnhart. And he started calling around trying to collect the money because, after all, Dan was going to be in a performance that following night and he was the lead. So they had to get him out, right? (laughs) So they started calling around and one of the people they called was Sam Hare. And Sam said, I am not participating. I'm not contributing. I I barely know them well enough to put in money. You know, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do it. And when they hung up the phone with him, Dave turned to Rachel and said, and he's the one that has more money than all of us, right? So so already they were kind of upset with Sam. And then finally yeah. they raised enough money, got got Dan out, and they went to that afternoon after he was released in the morning, they got they went to the hot tub in the complex and Sam was there. And Dan starts complaining, Oh my gosh, I never want to go to jail again. That was horrible spending that night. It was just it's just not for me, and I'm so glad I don't ever, ever want to go there again. And Sam responds, dude, are you kidding me? Like, I spent two years in Men's County Jail when I was facing my own murder charge. And they that was like, what? Like, they couldn't believe it. And so t- together, I think they started zeroing in on Sam Hare at that point as their possible target. And then the Tuesday before the murders, they had their eviction notice. Chris came in with some money, but they didn't have all of it. And ultimately, Sam offered to help with the rest of it. So Sam and Dan went to Sam's bank, and he took out the money from the ATM. Dan was over his shoulder, caught him putting the PIN number in, saw the gigantic total in Sam's account, and that was it. That was it. That He, he was it. He was the one, right? He was the one they were going to go after. He came back and I think, you know, told Rachel about that because he mentions in the call that he saw the total and how he got the pin. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was the one. So here is this kid trying to help them, right? He goes in and gets the cashier's check with all the money from the bank. He sees the pin and, and, he, and he was their target. Which was amazing that he could turn on somebody and... The Julie also, although I guess that's how he had to set Sam up. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Julie because that's where police and I believe Rachel's influence really stepped up because I had found out from Dave Barnhart, the gentleman I just mentioned earlier that helped raise the bail money for Dan, when Dan was arrested for that outstanding DUI. Dave Barnhart had a major crush on Rachel Buffett major. And they flirted. I mean, oftentimes Rachel would flirt right in front of Dan. They had this these parties that they called Taco Tuesdays. And she would be sitting on Dave's lap and say, watch, I'm going to make Dan kiss that guy. And he's going to do it for me or else I won't go home with him. And that's what she'd do. She'd set him up and say, you have to kiss so-and-so or you're, I'm not sleeping with you tonight. And it was a joke. And he would do it in front of everybody at this party and make him the clown and but that it was anything to just make her happy. Yeah, he. it was his dependence, his fear of losing her. 
I can certainly understand he needed her so much that he was willing to kill in order to get the money in order to make her happy. And when it came to Julie, I think the reason that Julie became part of the plan was that she was not only like a prop in their play, but she was also someone that I believe Rachel might have been a bit jealous of because two nights earlier, Dave Barnhart had consummated a relationship with Julie. I think he got tired of waiting around for anything to really happen with Rachel, although Rachel still wanted the attention, still wanted to believe she was the only one that he was interested in. He was separately having this ongoing friendship that turned into more with Julie, and I believe he might have said, I'm past you now, like I'm on to Julie, and that might have instigated the whole reason why they needed Julie as part of this plan. Well, I can see Rachel because just from observing the phone calls that she was extremely narcissistic and insecure even though she was a beautiful woman. And I can easily see seeing all of those texts on that telephone that she probably suspected that he was going to two-time or leave her. Oh, you're saying that you... Dan. Yeah, yeah. see, I'm thinking... Yeah, the, 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 te- the text I, I were don't coming... Really, I don't really remember Dan Bernhardt that no, well. Dave Barnhart is just a total... Dave Barnhart was a person that lived in Camden, Martinique, and he went to the Orange Coast College across the street, and he was very close with Sam, and and he also, but he was very interested in Rachel. I mean, he was hot for her. He wanted yeah. her, yeah. but she wasn't necessarily giving... He Allegedly, she wasn't giving much up to him, right? But to she Dave. loved to Dave. To Dave. Okay. But she but she loved the attention. She loved the pursuit. She loved the power she had over men, right? She loved You're that. Right. Oh, absolutely. So I my theory is that she found out about Dave Barnhart's budding relationship with Julie. And, and it had just jealous. happened two nights before the murders, and she yeah. was jealous. And then she sees these texts that Dan is sending to her as Sam, right? He's pretending to be Sam because it's on Sam's phone. And she sees him saying, oh, I'm just with my neighbor, Dan. I'm helping him move furniture in the theater. And she goes, you dummy, you just put yourself as the last person to be with Sam before he was murdered at the theater. So now she's got to go kind of thing. Or she's part of the plan now to make it look like Sam's on the run. And they had this jealous love thing that, you know, went awry and he killed her in the apartment because she wouldn't sleep with them or something. That was what the theory was. And that that whole thing began once Dan came back to the apartment and gave Chris Williams the first installment of money. I mean, that was at that point, he was back reconnected with Rachel. And all of a sudden, the text started heightening, the luring started to heighten in those texts to Julie. Yeah, I thought that that probably Rachel and Dan put a plot together to kill Julie in order to blame Sam for the murders and that Sam had taken off. So my supposition was that Rachel and Dan came up with that idea. So I don't I don't know so much about jealousy, although that certainly could be a component and she wouldn't mind seeing Julie out of the picture. But I thought that those two decided we can put this on Sam. It will explain his absence because he killed Julie. Right. And that's basically what Dan said to police when he confessed that that was what the plan was, that Sam was on the run, run and, and yeah. you know he was trying to escape justice after what he did to Julie. Yeah. But I can certainly see that Rachel wouldn't have... Rachel had no... Uh, verbiage of being guilty or feeling remorse for Dan killing these two people. So I can easily see that her self-centeredness could have made her very angry at Julie, feeling that she wasn't number one to both Dave and Dan anymore. And she had sent a 
Facebook message back to Julie. I guess Julie earlier that day sent a Facebook message to Rachel saying, oh, I ran into Dan last night when I was having dinner with Sam and Ruben and a bunch of people. And he mentioned you're getting married next week and congratulations. And Rachel at 11.15 that same day, that Friday night, after Sam was already murdered and Julie was about to be murdered, she said to Julie, oh, you know, thank you so much. When everything calms down, uh, we'll enjoy some summer sunshine at the pool and look forward to seeing you then. And this was at 11.15. Now, she told police that she was in bed and on her laptop she sent that message in bed. But I found out later that she had told another person, this gentleman by the name of Daniel Hulkyard, that, in fact, Dan was over her shoulder when she was sending that message. 45 minutes later, upstairs, Daniel, we don't know if Rachel was there, we might suspect, but we don't know for sure, but that Daniel met Julie at the door, at Sam's door at 12 midnight and brought her inside and, and then she was killed. So I just thought that was interesting because it's, again, her lies and inconsistencies with her stories as well. Ha- having Dan over her shoulder means they're in cahoots, right? They, they Absolutely. <laughs> right. So is that called collusion? <laughs> Another good C word. <laughs> I think we have one more we could come up with. <laughs> but yeah, I think that all of that plays a part. And certainly she seems there's there's so many reasons to believe that she was in on the planning. One of the things that she had said to police that again, that morning, like Daniel was arrested May 26th of 2010, Wednesday night. And early that Thursday morning, they did bring Rachel in. And and one of the things she, she said several things that made you wonder about her involvement. One of which was, you know, did you check into Sam's past? Because that's, they were using that, right? As right. A, a reason for him to be really the bad guy. I mean, here's a real reason why he's probably on the run and did this, because he's been charged with murder before, right? Right. And so she brought that up. And then she also said that when Dan came back with the money, I think he either gave it to Sam outside the apartment, or maybe it was one of the loan sharks. When she was sitting at the table, when Dan gave physically gave the money to Chris Williams, but she didn't tell the police about Chris Williams. She thought Chris Williams would never crop up, and certainly she knew at that point Sam was dead, so he couldn't he couldn't he contradict couldn't, what she right. said. Right to me, that's one of the most telling statements that she was part of the plan. Seeing Dan or. You know, the way I saw him from the phone calls and everything, that he would have done anything. But I don't think that he was somebody who had the strength or maybe the intelligence to do it all by himself. He's never been able to hold a job, not successful with relationships, was willing to marry this woman whom he had to know at some level really didn't love him, but he was so dependent it was okay. But I just don't see him as a person who could have thought this all out all by himself. And it's funny that you mention that because one of my other interviews were with a couple by the name of John and Kristen Spath. They were the parents of a a girl by the name of Brittany Boudreau, who was Dan's girlfriend prior to Rachel. And the longest relationship he had, almost two years, he was part of their family. He went on holidays with them. He went on cruises with them. In fact, the Wozniaks would go on holidays with the Spaths. But as soon as Marianne Wozniak found out about Brittany's real age, she cut all ties to the family. I guess she felt like the difference in age because he was... 17, older than 17, and she was still 15. And that just freaked Marianne out. Of course, Daniel had lied about that, so she hadn't known until that point. The Spath didn't understand why she all of a sudden like dropped them like, and was actually kind of rude to them socially when they would see each other. And so that whole relationship, while it ended because of Marianne, he still needed them and wanted them, and he still felt as if the Spaths were his family. In fact, he felt like John Spath was really more like his father figure. He would call Kristen hmm. his mom and John Spath his dad. On the weekend of the murders, when the murders took place, that Sunday, 
Dan had gone down to see John Spath. Kristen and her daughter were up. They were auditioning for American Idol, and she was doing really well. She was getting through a couple of rounds. So John was by himself, and Dan said, why don't I come down? I'll bring some stogies. We'll grill up some steaks. And so he did. And he then, John said it was just the oddest conversation because he was telling me, I wish I could be more like you. I'm terrible with confrontation. Even though I'm a big guy and people think I can handle myself and protect myself, I've always been controlled by women. And I am wondering if I'm marrying the wrong girl. You protect your family. I, you're, you, I wish I could be more like you, strong like you. And, and I said, John, you realize he was trying to confess to you. It, was, it came close, didn't it? He goes, it was just the oddest, strangest. And I told him that if he felt she was the wrong girl, and if you're feeling that now, you know, nobody's going to care if you, if you end it now. And I said, I said to John that, you know, that was the weekend of the murders. He was doing, so, he was doing what he was doing for, for this love of this empty person that he probably recognized was not too good for him at this point. It sure sounds that way, that he was, it sounds like they were already planning these murders, or at least the Sam to get the money. But it sounds like he was trying to pull away from that because he knew it wasn't right. And also, Rachel found the sex tape. There was a sex tape oh. that, that, and it was with Brittany Boudreaux, his former girlfriend. And they had had sex and it was filmed and dated during the time that Rachel was already engaged to Dan. So when she found that, she found that and it was actually next to um, Daryl's gun because they had a safe in the apartment. Dan and Rachel had a little, small little safe. And the gun and the sex tape were in the safe. And, and she had found, and I always say, if she found the sex tape, she had to have found the gun, right? I mean, right. so oh. what What does that tell you? That there's all of a sudden a gun in your house? What's it doing there? And why is there this gun cleaning kit on top of the safe? All these indications probably were a good hint that there was some murder Something about was going to on. happen, right? <laughs> so anyway, she she found this tape and this this had happened just a few weeks before the murder. So the whole idea of I'm going to leave you was all of a sudden really a subject that he had to convince her not to. And so the way he convinced her not to leave him was to say, look, I taped this because I was going to extort money from the family. I taped it as a tool, as a weapon to get this money out of them. And so she thought, oh, okay, like that was fine. As long, no. as, you, as long as you get money, as long as you get money to take care of me. Money, honey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I want to go on a cruise for my yes. honeymoon. Yes, yes. I don't love you all that much, but boy, I could sure use a nice trip. <laughs> nice cruise, right? Even if your penis is small. That's right. I'll make do. <laughs> There's always the captain. Yes. <laughs> There's a follow-up visit that the Spaths had that I want to share with you that happened after Dan was arrested and after he confessed to the murders. Wait, wait, wait. You, the spouse? Spaths, uh, again, the parents of oh, Brittany, the okay. of the girl that's I, in the I sex heard tape. Spouse, that was, and I was wondering. No, no, on, not who in the hell spouse. Is a spouse? Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> okay. So there's another follow-up visit that the Spaths had that I'd like to share with you that happened three days after Dan was arrested on a Wednesday. He confessed on a Thursday. By that Saturday, Rachel comes knocking on their door on the Spath store with Brother Noah, and she had about a fifth of vodka with her that was pretty well drunk. Literally in her hand, she's bringing in the vodka. So Kristen and Brittany, her daughter, go out on the deck. Now, again, Brittany's the girl on the sex tape, right? The former girlfriend. She goes out on the deck with Rachel, and Noah sits in the little family room area off the kitchen with John Spath, the father, right? And John says, you know, of all the times we've spent with Dan, I mean, he was like a, a son to us. We traveled with him. He practically lived here at times. We never saw a violent person. We never saw a man that would be capable of this kind of crime, you know, this, these kind of murders, murder and dismemberment. It was just, it boggled their minds, right? They, they said someone else had to have been involved. We, he couldn't have done this alone. And Noah brings out this corn pipe 
And John said to me, it wasn't even lit. It was just this silly old corn pipe, like like he was about to be professorial, right? And said, oh, I believe he's capable of it because we used to sit around and play games about how we would kill people and get away with it. And, and you know, that, that, that rental that they were in, I was the co-signer because he got, they got evicted from so many places, their credit was pathetic that I had to co-sign. So he promised me, he said to me, if he could get out $400 a day, we would be fine and we would make the rent. Well, when John told me that, and John heard that, they immediately called the authorities because they said, how would you know these details about getting $400 a day? Back then, you could only get $400 out of your ATM per day. And that was Dan's plan to get $400 a day out of Sam's account using Wesley, right, to get it out. And so... The idea that they knew about these plans and that they had talked about these games together about killing people, and then he knew that kind of a detail, really made John and Kristen feel that Dan was not alone in this plan. Yeah, that's sort of continuing on your on your theory as well. That you, based on what you've heard and seen, that it seems like Dan was not capable of planning this himself. I don't think so. It doesn't appear that he had that much ability to think ahead about consequences. Although he was smart enough, I guess, to take the tools to the theater. and That he picked up from Noah's house. That he, oh, interesting, interesting. With Tim in the car. Yeah, with Tim in the car. And don't you think Tim might have said, what are those for? <laughs> Of course he would have. But don't forget, he was the dude bringing the crystal meth in. Like he, he was part, he even said to one of his high school friends, because this high school friend, Bob Castilla, who knew the Wozniaks their, you know, his whole life, said, if Dan is involved in drugs and crystal meth, it's got your handprint all over it, Tim. And I want to go down and talk to him. And so Tim brought Bob down to Camden Martinique. And unfortunately, he missed Dan. He wasn't there at the time. But Tim brought him around the apartment and said, by the way, this is where I'm moving in. And Tim told Bob he was moving into this walk-in closet. So he was absolutely a huge part of their life, a huge part of that weekend. And I, I could share more details, but Tim was involved in pretty much every step of that week in the murder weekend. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no question Dan's taking the hit. He's taking it alone. And the reason why I think he's not giving Rachel up is because that would be connected to revealing Tim's role. But it sure sounds like Tim had a role in it, in that he had the weapons, and they he went to the theater with Dan to drop all that stuff off, maybe helped him carry it up the stairs, because that was a lot of stuff to carry up those stairs Good into point. that attic. And then he turns out to have the bag full of the dirty, the bloody clothes. And and then there was a crate. The there was a crate with like, you know, an axe, a bloody axe and all these tools, bloody tools. And that crate for a very long time was in their apartment. And Rachel said to police that morning that she was brought in that I talk about after Dan was arrested she said for like a long time she didn't want to go in the bedroom. She slept on the couch in the living room. Because of the crate sitting there. You yeah. could suppose that. Huh. You think maybe she suspected something? Maybe a little? <laughs> I mean, Sam's key car keys were on the counter. His laptop was on their little shelf in the living room. I mean, Duh. Dan was doing these texts on a flip phone, which was a very archaic phone versus the phone that Dan had, which was this new high-tech phone that he had. I mean, wouldn't you say, whose phone is that? Who's, yes. Whose phone are you on? Absolutely. Tell us if there's anything more that you'd like to share about your hypotheses or if you wanted to talk about any um, kind of diagnosis, again, that you have not ever met, Dan, but what you suppose. Well, I certainly see that he meets many of the criteria for being an antisocial personality. His ability to steal, his ability to con other people, his total lack of remorse, his long history of DUIs and 
conning and those those all meet the criteria for antisocial. But then his high dependence upon this woman makes him also have different features of borderline, that they have this horrible fear, persistent fear of being abandoned. They will do anything in order to keep the other person they're dependent upon in their lives. And I think in this situation, even to kill. So they they cross any socio barrier mor- morality wise or right. legally. They the, there is no boundary, and they don't learn from their mistakes. And that's certainly obvious with Dan, that he continued to stiff people, to con steal. people, to steal. I mean, they stole their food, their alcohol. They stole their furniture. They stole on on almost a daily basis. I didn't pay their rent. I mean, it's very sociopathic. On some level, I feel like he was relieved when he got in jail because everything was covered at that point. I have, I have that same fantasy that it was a relief to be away because he seemed to lack internal control. He needed external control. And in the jail, you have lots of external control. But it doesn't sound like in his childhood and growing up with this overly controlling mother, he learned any internal control. And you mentioned about the family, you said that there was a dynamic that you wondered about as far as the middle brother, Tim, and his relationship and feelings towards Daniel. Well, it's hard when you are being the favored child, the baby in the child, many years, and then all of a sudden to be usurped by a younger brother. And of course, Mama doted on the younger, this brand new baby. And now then, Tim was old and kind of forgotten. So I'm sure there was a lot of rivalry between the two men. So do you feel like that rivalry could have instigated some kind of a setup of Dan? Well, of of Dan, I was thinking also the setup of Tim, that Rachel was so eager, and I would guess that was Dan and Rachel so eager to involve Tim in giving him the bloody uh, package of... Evidence. The, the evidence and the instruments, yes. And as the prosecutor called it, the cornucopia of evidence. Oh, yes. Perfect. And so, and then her being very eager to tell the detective, oh, yes, Tim has evidence. And so it seemed to me that it was the other way around, that it was she and Dan who set Tim up. You know, Tim... I've heard the prosecutor say was just another victim of Dan Wozniak, like Sam and Julie. And it really ruffled me because it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. But they did not go after him. And the reason they didn't go yeah. after him was because the prosecutor was concerned about the defense attorney coming up with a mental illness argument. And I um, wanted to ask you, when you heard Dan on those calls saying he was starting to hear voices and he's crazy and he knows he's crazy, when Rachel starts yelling at him, telling him he's crazy and that he should be in a mental institution, do you feel, based on what you heard, that that would have been a legitimate legal argument? Because from what I heard from the defense attorney, that in no way would he have been able to present a mental illness argument that legally he didn't meet that criteria. I'd love to know your opinion. I, I don't believe he met the criteria either. Um, he, and I think the whole thing about he heard voices reminded me of Ken Bianchi trying to, the Hillside Strangler, of his trying to get away with it, saying he was a multiple personality. And I had the same feeling about Dan that he and Rachel have kind of concocted this thing. And all of a sudden in the phone calls, she's saying, well, you're crazy, you know. And, and then his saying to her, well, what do you think, Rachel? Should I go 
for uh, try to get in the mental hospital, or should I go to jail? Like he can check a box, right? Exactly. Mental institution or prison? Yeah, that doesn't work. That Just way. have to work, be more crazy. So I I can certainly understand why the defense attorney didn't try for that. He no. So therefore, then there really was no reason to give Tim a plea deal. It was just this this need, this, you know, prosecuted all costs for for the capital case yeah. that this prosecutor wanted and needed yeah. that he that he offered that. And which is which is really unfortunate because based on my interviews and research and knowledge of Tim's role, he should not have been offered anything. Well and the other thing is Dan was a tall man, wasn't he? And well built. Can can you visualize he all by himself carrying all those body parts down that skinny little uh, ladder that went up into the attic in the theater? I can't I can't imagine either thing, him getting the tools up there all by himself, or his getting the body parts down all by himself. Well, that's another thing. From what I gathered, Dan didn't realize Sam was Sam was a meaty guy. He was a stocky, well-built guy. And from what I understand from Tim, the tools were ridiculous. They were just not the appropriate tools for the dismemberment. They were poor quality. And so the struggle was that he or they, depending on, on what theory you look at, uh, couldn't cut up the body to the extent they had to leave most of the body there. And and allegedly, one of the theories was that he was going to take the body parts and, and throw them in this incinerator that was in the medical hospital right behind the theater. Because as you know, the Joint Forces base was a military base, right. and there was a military hospital with a crematorium and an incinerator. And Jeff Hathcock had given Dan a tour of it. So he knew it was there because Dan had this fascination with the macabre. He loved Halloween. He would go mm. up in the attic of the theater and scare the kids when they were rehearsing on stage at the theater. He actually did sort of live out this real-life Phantom. Phantom of the Opera, right? <laughs> Which is what I've said about this case. And so... The idea that he was maybe thinking of burning the body, which is a theory I have based on uh, a conversation I had with her boyfriend after subsequent to Dan, who she confessed that to that I had told him to burn the body. Her, her Rachel, Rachel, her Rachel. Yeah, yeah. Rachel had. It was in a drunken stupor, but she all of a sudden, out of the blue, like starts gets. She had her head on his lap. He was driving home from. They were. They had performed in this karaoke bar whatever and they were driving home and she kind of took up her uh, hand and like started pounding on his chest and she said I told you to burn the body I told you to burn she said it once I told you to burn the body and he said it was like he was frozen in time he, he said it was clear that she thought he was Dan yeah and so he shared that with me I'm sure and 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 Rachel and Dan were at the theater two nights before the murder and I have witnesses telling me, confirming that. And it was so odd. Why were they there? They had no reason to be there. They weren't in the show that they were rehearsing at the time. So all of these details sort of... Loose ends. Lots of loose ends. That we're hopefully tying up at the end of this podcast. Yes. yes. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today on Sleuth. Thank you for having me. And thank you for Pleasure. Next time on Sleuth, we're going to surprise you with a guest who I like to call my deep throat. She's come forward since Sleuth has been published with revelations that will astonish you more than any other episode you've heard to date. After three years of digging and sleuthing on this case, we are finally able to reveal the definitive pieces of this murderous puzzle. You will not want to miss a single minute. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.
Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.